Good morning, everybody. <clears throat> um, we have a thesis for today. Our thesis today is that God will humble the proud and exalt the humble. This is going to be a thesis that we work through and that we look at. <clears throat> we're going to use it as an interpretation tool for our conversation today. Today we're going to be looking at one of the many, many magnificent prayers in Scripture. Um, uh, scripture is filled with these beautiful prayers that people have, have prayed to God and written down. And um, so I thought I would just ask and throw out there to you guys, um, when you look, when you think about the great prayers of Scripture, which, which ones are the ones that you turn to? What are your favorite prayers in Scripture? Okay, the Magnificat, when, when Mary prays, we're going to reference that one here in a moment. What's another one? What's that? The prayer of Moses, a great prayer. What's that? Psalm 51. Yes, there are many great psalms that are prayers, and the 51st psalm is an is amazing one. Yeah, Michael. Okay, the prayer of Jesus the, in, the, in the garden, the prayer in the garden before he's arrested. Very good, very excellent. The Lord's Prayer, of course, is one of the, truly one of the great, maybe the greatest prayer of all time, right? Any others? Yeah, in the back. What's that? <clears throat> yeah, Paul has a lengthy prayer that's woven throughout, but especially in chapter 1, there's a very clear prayer in Ephesians. Any others? Okay, his prayer for his disciples. Good. What's that? Jonah's prayer from the belly of the fish. Exactly. Excellent example. Any others that I'm missing? Yeah, that's, yeah, that's exactly the, the prayer where Jesus asks. This, that's the one Michael was mentioning a second ago from the garden. Excellent. Good. Very good. Okay, so <laughs> there are lots of them. Excellent prayers all throughout. We're looking at you know, truly one of those that, that I believe is, works to inspire several of the others as we will look at. Um, here's the main message of this prayer. God is a God of the reversal of fortunes. In this chapter, he will be praised in, one of, in this great prayer, and especially if you're someone who has ever been at a time when you need your fortunes reversed, you can appreciate that God is a God of the reversal of fortunes. People who know him well seem to emphasize this about him. I was asked an insightful question this week um, by a friend. Um, how did this probably, we don't know for sure, but how did this probably, at least relatively, uneducated Jewish woman during the time of the judges, a time of godlessness, of faithlessness, how did she put together a prayer that's this poetic, this beautiful? So I'm going to have a couple of answers I want to give to that. And one is it is important to remember that human beings are not smarter than we were 3,000, 4,000 years ago. That's a false understanding. We're not more intelligent. In fact, you could argue that in regards to some things, we are probably less intelligent. Like we're, we're less capable of certain skills. Their skill with language, their skill with memory and memorization uh, is probably very few of us could compete with any of them today. Um, it takes me weeks to memorize even simple things. There was a day, <coughs> excuse me, when I was better at it. Um, I used to know dozens of phone numbers when I was a, a young man. Um, I now know two <coughs> because I have a smartphone. I don't I know you by your name. I don't know you by your phone number anymore. And that's a, 
that's a, that's a, it's a, a different world that we live in. We used to have dozens of numbers memorized and you could crank those things out. That's, that's pretty significant. That's one. Um, we, we don't, in fact, we're, what we definitely don't have is, is a time in most of our lives that is quiet, that is still for our minds to ponder, to think deeply. Um, we are now more enslaved, sorry, advanced in our technological advancements um, than, than they would have been back then. Obviously, we don't have a lot of quiet time. I'm not, I'm not good at quiet time. But imagine, could David have written the Psalms if he hadn't spent hundreds of hours, maybe thousands of hours wandering by himself with sheep in the wilderness? How many of the Psalms would we have gotten if not for times of private consideration? Um, uh, talking this week <clears throat> about Fanny Crosby, who I'm going to reference in a, in a future service, I think, who in her lifetime wrote thousands of hymns. Um, was part of that because she was blind and there wasn't a whole lot of, you know, she couldn't listen to podcasts and audiobooks and stuff like that all day. And so she spent a lot of time in silence and prayer consideration. And that's how that happened. Um, I think Hannah, by the way, I think Hannah has been writing this prayer. I don't think this is an extemporaneous prayer. I don't think in the moment Hannah suddenly just prays this prayer. And that's not possible, obviously, that it could have happened that way. But I think this is a prayer that Hannah has been writing in her heart for however many years she's been nursing uh, Samuel. I think she's been writing this prayer and praying this prayer week after week and month after month in the deep hours of the night as she's nursing this child and she's praying a prayer and she's considering her fortunes and how God has reversed them and the power of that. Um, and by the way, think about this question. Why do we have this prayer? How did it make it into our Bible? And at what point, so you got to imagine, where did Samuel get it? Had Samuel heard it every year when she came to visit him in the tabernacle? Did she pray this prayer again and he heard it year after year? Did she fold it up in a note and put it with his little uh, robe that she brought him as a gift every year and then he pinned it up by his bed somehow and would read this prayer by his mother year after year? There's a beautiful sentimentality to the fact that somehow this prayer was taken and passed along from Hannah to Samuel and Samuel wrote it down for us to be looking at thousands of years later. That's a pretty beautiful picture. Here's the second thing I think is going on here is I think the Holy Spirit is at work in Hannah's heart and in her mind. I think the Spirit is giving Hannah insight into the heavenly realm. I think she is overhearing the songs of the heavenly realms. You're, when you see in a moment how her song mirrors later David's song and later Mary's song, you're going to see that this is a, these are themes that have been going on in heaven and the praise in heaven. And I think maybe they're overhearing those a little bit. In fact, um, I'm going to submit the idea that the Spirit may have had her praying aspects of the truth about the future of a new covenant that Hannah could not have known anything about. Start in verse 1 of chapter 2. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There's none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. This is a big deal here. We've got this opening prayer, this opening part of this prayer like this. And she's starting to lay this out. My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn, horn just meaning my strength, my power, my authority, my influence. Think of the horn as 
serving two main purposes. One is it was used to anoint kings and priests, and it was also used to, to blow, like we talked about. To, we've, you've seen us blow the shofar in here, the horn to announce sacrifices and to announce the coming of a king and to announce war. And so the horn represents those things. Now, again, you read that. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none beside him. There is no rock like our God. This is a woman who has just left her only son behind in the tabernacle. How is she writing this? How is her heart able to write this? This is not just some quick emotional response, by the way. My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn, my mouth. This is the three parts of the human being. Our strength, our soul, and our word. Let, let everything we do, all of those things, Everything, um, uh, hero Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your heart with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. This is that same kind of picture. This is the fullness of who she is. This is her power. He is her power and he is her foundation. <clears throat> it's fascinating that she says enemies, by the way, plural. This isn't just Penina that she's, um, uh, you know, upset about. This is her rival. I don't, she did, I don't know that she would even refer to her as an enemy, just a rival. So who is she talking about here? Well, a lot of the commentaries think that Hannah here is not speaking merely as an individual, but is speaking for her people. She's now a representative. She's now a, a representative of the people of Israel, the enemies of Israel. I deride them. I mock them with my words. There's none holy like you. She answers the question of the name Michael. Michael, Michael, which is my middle name. It's my father's name. It's my son's name. Asks a question. It's a name that is a question. Who is like God? And her answer is, not you. And not me. There is no one like him. There is no rock like our God. There are none beside him. None. Verse three, talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge and by him actions are weighed. She, he knows the truth. He knows all the truth. If you understand there's no one like him, that should humble you, whoever you are. We should come into every encounter that we have in life humbled by the fact that we aren't God. And he is. There is no rock like him. There's no no one like him. He knows all truth. He is going to judge us perfectly. Having this conversation just the other day with somebody about the idea of God's judgment. Is God's judgment arbitrary? No, God's judgment is perfect. He has the perfect, he knows all things, right? He knows all things. He even knows what would have happened. You know, God can judge us based on every single encounter, every single thing in our life, based on what we did, versus what we ought to have done, what all the options would have been, the complete understanding of our heart and our motivation fully. We don't even know our own heart and motivation like that. He does. <clears throat> when he judges, it is flawless. We work so hard to project a certain type of, of, of motivation in our hearts and a certain a way we're trying to do things. Man, we fight so hard. What, 95% probably of the fights in our marriage or when our spouse says, hey, what you did hurt me? And, we, and our response is, well, I didn't mean to. What are you saying about me? That I would try to hurt you? Like, no, I'm just, I'm just saying you did. I'm not saying you went out of your way to do it. I'm just saying what you did, did did hurt me. And we want to defend our motives. What kind of person are you saying that I am? 
I'm saying you're the kind of person who might hurt me. Is that a shock to you? Is that like, that's news? Hey, here, welcome to the human race, right? But we work so hard, we'll defend so hard our motives, and God's going like, yeah, I know better. I happen to know your motives aren't pure. I know all things. I'm a God of knowledge. I know all things. I have a fully, completely accurate understanding of everything. And I will judge. That's why no one else is allowed to. Why would anyone else get to do delegate that information when he's the only one who gets it? He's the only one who fully understands it. It's not arbitrary. It's exactly the opposite of arbitrary. It is flawless and complete. He will weigh. He can weigh all actions. Verse 4. Now we get into the reversal of fortunes. Knowing what he knows, the bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven. She who has many children is forlorn. I mean, okay, that last one does seem a little pointed, doesn't it? It does feel a little like, you overhearing my prayer here, Panina, you hearing that? <clears throat> this does happen. So I do want to comment, though. This seems significant. You read through this, and maybe your thought is, wow, so God kind of hates the mighty? God kind of hates the full? God kind of hates the person with lots of kids? No, no. Remember, our thesis, our interpretation tool is this. God opposes the proud and exalts the humble. So if you find pride in any of those things, yes, God opposes that. God opposes the pride in us. If you find your value in your strength, God opposes it. If you find your significance in the fact that you get enough to eat, which is so hard for us as Americans, we're so wealthy, we can't even wrap our brain around passages like this in the Bible. Like, I'm always full. I don't remember the last time I wasn't full. Even when I say I'm hungry, I realize I'm just not. I just want more food. We have a hard time. These people lived hungry. Most of their, most humans <coughs> have lived hungry most of their lives. <coughs> not, <coughs> not constantly, endlessly full like we are. This is a big deal. It's a big motivator. And he's saying like, you're full and you're proud of that? I can fix that. I mean, the hungry part, sure, but the proud part. That's what I can fix. He, he reverses these. Does God hate wealthy, prosperous, full, strong, those with many children? No, but he stands against our pride in those things. Our building of our identity in those things. Us calling those things our rock. Us saying those things can provide for us like he does. That's what he hates. Verse 6, she puts the power fully in God's hands for all things in this. Again, this can make us uncomfortable. Not Hannah. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol, that's the Hebrew word for the grave, the place where dead people, and he raises up. The Lord makes poor and he makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. The nature of God is this. Everything is his. Everything. He built it. And then he put it on what he built. He proclaims it. He thinks of it. He creates it. He puts it into existence. It is fully his. From beginning to ending, it's consideration until it's destruction. It's fully his. Everything. You say, well, the earth is the Lord's. Uh-huh. Sure. And whatever he did to set the, the earth into space, that's his too. Whatever he built it on, that was his. Every single thing. <clears throat> now, this is significant 
If we're not careful, this passage and passages like this absolutely refute the prosperity gospel. These fly in the very face of those who in the name of Jesus Christ say, good Christians are always wealthy, always healthy, always powerful, always significant. And this is very clear, no, they're not. If you find pride in any of that, you should be living in trepidation of the fact that God may decide to reverse your fortunes. If you're a nobody and you're humble, God may look on you and say, that I love. I love that. I'm going to reverse that person's fortunes. Understand, wherever we are, there is no such thing as this measurement of our faith, measurement of our relationship with God based on our current circumstances. Wherever we are right now, he may be about to totally change that. If you've been alive very long, you know this. The very things that you would say, this is the most important thing to me. I grasp it close to who I am. You know perfectly well that can be yanked out of your hands in a second, no matter what it is, except for him. That's absolutely the case. And, and if we'd live as though somehow everybody who gets what they want right now, those must be blessed by God. Well, then the minute they aren't, the minute they lose something, we should all then be teaching like, oh, and now apparently God hates them. That is absolutely unscriptural. Wherever we are in the, in the fortunes of life, God is in the process potentially of reversing those. It is not, it's, it's not some kind of, some kind of, God's not some kind of uh, uh, ATM that we go to and scan our card and he's somehow obligated to bless us in some certain way. It's, it's offensive. I, I think Hannah would have laughed her head off at some of the modern day teaching about God and the prosperity gospel. I think, I think she would have openly mocked them like enemies, which is what I'm doing. It is all his, every bit of it. You place your, and by the way, reversals of life are exactly going to happen. They're going to happen anyway. This is part of how God made us was to experience reversals of life. I, I often tell people the problem with midlife crises is that we don't have them early enough and often enough. And we need to start having midlife crisis easily within our 20s. About the time our adolescents are done, we should start scheduling them about once a week, once a month, something like that, where you sit down and you have a mini crisis over, is this life? That's, that's a great question for all of us to ask. Is this life? Is this it? This is what life's going to be for me? And we ask that. Is, am I in alignment with Almighty God with what He wants for me? These are great questions to have. <clears throat> There's these psychological things that happen that, are, that we call midlife crises. And a lot of times they're, they're kind of embarrassing because they're kind of pathetic. That people will say, they, they get, they, we get in a, a psychological spiral because am I never, I'm never going to be wealthy enough. I'm never going to be famous enough. I'm never going to be this or I'm never going to be that. I'm never going to have this or I'm never going to have that. I'm never going to experience this. And the minute we realize, oh my gosh, I'm going to die without ever experiencing this thing. I'm going to die without ever having this thing. And are, we psychologically start to spiral and panic and and reach out like we're a drowning person. Those are just psychological in nature. Um, you're not going to solve them by getting a new car or a new wife or a new husband or a new job. Or, you're not going to solve them that way. Um, you don't solve internal problems with external changes. This is, this is an axiom. <clears throat> However, there are reversals that will happen to all of us that actually happen. Here's an example of one. So I like to wrestle through these with myself and with other people. There's, these are great conversations. There does come a day when you are not capable like you once were. 
Like right, right now, I'm still at that place, I think, when most people would think if I was at the grocery store and the grid went down and everything, everything kind of fell apart all at the same time, it was the end of the world as we know it, I think many people who know me would look to me as kind of a survivalist, mountain man, prepper type of person like, hey, Chris, help us get home. There will come a day, and it's not that too far in the future, when I'm going to be looking around going, can somebody help me get home? And it doesn't matter who you are, that day comes. Are, is, is what you've built your life on enough of a rock that you don't cease to exist when that happens? Is your identity just your own capability? Is, your, is prosperity your security? Watch out. It'll be taken from you in a second. The other example I shared in first service, which I won't go into as much, is, is the, the crisis that I'm, I'm facing right now. So um, for all of you who are redheads, you understand this. <clears throat> from the, when you're, especially when you're a little boy, but when you're a redhead, man, every old woman bugs you. Every, they all, am I right? They all stop you like, oh my gosh, I love your hair. Oh, I've been trying to dye my hair that color for 20 years. How do you get it? Could you come to my hairdresser and show him that color? That, and I, I mean, when you're a kid, it is, it is non-stop. I hated being a redhead. Hated it as a kid. I was like, oh my gosh, this is just the worst. And it was, I mean, I'm, I just, it was like, let's go to the store. I was like, oh, I don't want to go to the store. I know what's going to happen. Like nine people are going to stop and comment. I hated it. And then I met a girl who liked redheads. And then it was fine. <laughs> it was all right, right? Um, we try not to read too much psychology into the fact that one of Ginger's earliest baby dolls was a little redheaded baby doll that she named Christopher. <laughs> so it's a, it's a gospel truth right there. Um, we just don't talk about it. So this is a, uh, but here's what's happening. My red, the, the hair that's still red is still just as red as it's always been. They're just getting badly outnumbered by the white ones. And, and more and more, this is the case. And here's what I realized. There's going to come a day, probably sometime in the next 10 years, where I'm going to meet someone for the first time, and they're not going to ever have known that I was a redhead. What do I do with that? I've been either hating or loving being a redhead my whole life. And one day I'm not going to be one all of a sudden. And you're like, why is this a big deal? Because you're not a redhead. That's why you're asking, by the way. <laughs> if you're a redhead, you wouldn't be asking that question. You get, this is, a, this is a part of our identity that gets hammered into us constantly. I was always teased for, I have the last name Leg. And I was teased for having red hair. Not for my last name, because this is even a bigger target. I'm telling you, it's everything when you're a kid. When you, are you building your identity on anything that can be taken from you? <laughs> because it may be. Our identities shift. The reversal of fortunes are inevitable. There's only one rock. There's only one. Here's what it says in verse 9. She continues, He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. Security does not live in our might or in our prosperity or in our, even our capability. God can and does sometimes allow for and cause reversals. Sometimes just to teach us something. Because the eternal is so much more important to him than our immediate circumstances. Verse 10, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. Keep in mind, this is a God. This is the same God we serve. He still considers some his enemies and he will break them into pieces that happens, it will happen. And this last phrase, the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. This is a woman praying this prayer who has one child 
that she has been praying for for I don't know how long, only God knows. And God has not yet spoken in Samuel. <coughs> he will later, but he hasn't spoken yet. <coughs> how long has she been asking? I don't know. And a miracle happens. We talked about this last time that the broken is made whole. It is, it's a wild concept. It is such a great reminder of just how broken and fallen our world is that sometimes it takes a miracle just for things to work the way God intended. That that requires a miracle of God to reach in and fix something that is broken. That's, that's wild to me to consider. We're so used to it being broken that we don't even think about the fact, wait, God, all God did was make Hannah, Hannah's body work right. That's all he did. Work as he had intended all along. And that's a miracle here. But honestly, that shouldn't be that surprising. All human friendships are a miracle. The fact that we can be friends with each other, all human marriages are a miracle. We're so broken. What's the thought of bringing two people together? What are we thinking? This is not going to go well. Any of them that do should be a shock to us. All these relationships, all churches are a miracle. <clears throat> Church splits shouldn't be that shocking. We should be shocked they don't happen 10 times as often. Have you met any humans? Us trying to gather together? That's a miracle that we could be aligned in him. We don't align in many other things. It's a powerful picture. So here God has fixed a broken thing. What a celebration. When, look when God, so one of the things I'd encourage you from, from the very beginning of the very first talk about 1 Samuel was this, watch for when people worship in this. And here we see, so we see her worshiping at the loss of her only son. As she is left in behind in the tabernacle, she worships God and, she, and the God of the, who blesses the lowly as she leaves the child behind. How? I would love at least one more chapter stuck in here to explain what Hannah does, how she talks herself through this. And I realized, even as I said that this morning, that may be exactly what we're reading. She is rejoicing in the honor of leaving her only son behind at the tabernacle. She is rejoicing at this. This is key. She reserves her worship for God, not her son. She reserves her worship for God, not her family. Let me tell you, it scares me. It, it concerns me how often, if you ask a Christian in America, what's the most important thing to you, that they will say they're family. No, they aren't. If you're a follower of Christ, understand your family falls into that whole model of things that can be taken from you in an instant. They are not our rock. Our family is important. Our family is a blessing from God. Absolutely. They are not, however, God. They do not replace God. They don't replace who he is or where he is or who he's supposed to be in our lives. That's a huge error. You build your identity on your family. One, I promise you, they can't support your identity. You're just too messed up. You're too messed up to expect your children to be the rock of your foundation of your identity or your friends to be the foundation of your identity or your spouse to be the foundation of your identity. I sent this out uh, uh, yesterday and I got a, a text back from Redfern, uh, John Redfern saying, this flies in the idea that the role of children is to fill some void in us. To fill some, oh, I've got this void inside of me. I need to have a child to fill that void. <laughs> Clearly, you don't have children yet. <laughs> I can tell you that. There are all kinds of new voids. 
Uh, they get created with kids. Um, they're awesome, and they're a great gift from the Lord as she celebrates, and, and I do too. And yet, the void you're feeling, that's, that's, that probably is a void that only God can fill. Not kids, not spouses, not finances, not health, not friends, not popularity, not fame, not whatever pick it is. She is rejoicing in the honor of leaving her son, who's probably, you can ask Elkanah, the second or third most important thing in her life for the sake of the first most important thing in her life. So she celebrates that. Another clear question that should create for us, especially those of us who are parents, is what are we giving our children to? Where are we leaving them? What are we preparing them for? Is it success in the world? Tim Kimmel wrote a great book called um, Raising Kids for True Greatness. And in it, he criticizes the American Christian family because we work so hard to raise our children to be a success in America rather than to be great in the kingdom. And he says it's not always a trade-off, but when it is, American families, so often what we pick is success in the world and success in America rather than greatness in the kingdom. If we ask our children, what are the most important things to us? What are we trying to build your life to focus on? What is it clear that we want you to spend your entire life doing? Are they going to say, play sports? Clearly, that's what you're asking us to do, asking me to do. To make money, to be smart, to make grades. What are we driven toward? What are we investing our lives in? What are we willing to die for? And do they see that? Will we, like Hannah, be prayerful, strategic, intentional about sacrificing them for, I don't mean literally, but sacrificing our relationship with them for the Lord, leaving them with him in his tabernacle, so to speak. Think about the other similar prayers we get about this. The, the, the other prayer, we, we looked at, some people mentioned these. Uh, and we were talking about this, uh, Paul McKenzie pointed out, it's fascinating that that first Samuel essentially opens, you get this little story and then it opens with this prayer this prayer of the reversal of fortunes. There's a great God who is the God of reversal of fortunes. And 2 Samuel, and these used to be combined, 2 Samuel is going to essentially end with another prayer, this one by David. David is going to pray in 2 Samuel 22. I'm not going to read it because it's 51 verses long. But for three verses, here's three of them. And I picked these verses partially for the people from my generation. The first one, um, you're going to recognize. The Lord lives. And blessed be my rock. Sound familiar, by the way, from the exactly same one she did. And blessed be my rock, and exalted be my God, the rock of my salvation. Everybody from my generation, you went to youth camp, especially Baptist youth camp. The Lord liveth, and blessed, nobody, just me. Blessed be the rock, and may the God of my salvation, right? If my voice was better, I'd keep singing, but it's just going to get bad. Uh, right now, I can't even hardly talk much. Let's sing. Um... Now, we, we did not keep singing on to verse uh, 48. The God who gave me vengeance and brought down people under me. Um, the praise song ended before that verse. Um, and who brought me out from my enemies. You exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from men of violence. Does this sound familiar, this principle? Did David learn this principle? God is a God of the reversal of fortunes. My head was under the foot of my enemy. And now his head is under my foot. And God did that. He is my rock. Just like Hannah said. How about the song of Mary? Somebody referenced the Magnificat. This is from Luke. Chapter 1, starting in, I'm going to start in verse 50. I'm just going to read three again a few verses. 
And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estates. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Okay, do you think Mary had read Hannah's song? She probably knew it by heart. And her prayer mirrors it. God is a God of the reversal of fortunes. There is no one so mighty that they can trust in that as compared to him because he can bring them down. And there's no one so lowly who trusts in him that he might not, he does not always, but that he might not raise up to the highest heights. And she's a great example. She's going to give birth to the Prince of Peace, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, this humble woman. And by the way, this is great. When you look at this, I've got to comment on this. Um, look down and, and again, back to that um, <coughs> verse. Uh, make sure I have it right. Verse 10, the second half of verse 10 says this. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. I've got to comment on this because there is no reason for Hannah to pray this. None. There is no king of Israel. Who is she talking about? Who is this that he will give strength to his king? Who is she talking about? I think this is the Holy Spirit working through her to speak about the covenant and the promises that are coming. Because think of how cool this is. There is no king. In a few chapters, the people of Israel are going to decide God's not enough for them. They also need a, her earthly king. And so God is going to pick one, a guy named Saul. And Saul is going to get pulled out, and God is going to have King Saul, the first king of Israel, anointed by Samuel, the little boy who she just left in the tabernacle. And Saul is an utter failure as a king. Not utter. He has some highlights, but mostly a failure as a king. We're going to learn a lot about bad leadership from Saul. And finally, God has had enough of Saul, and he says, I'm going to choose somebody to replace you. And it's this little shepherd boy, a very lowly shepherd boy, the lowest in his family. And he's going to call him and he's going to have him anointed as king by Samuel. How cool is that? That here she is walking about the, the anointing of a king who doesn't exist. And the boy she's praying about to the God to whom she's praying are going to be the ones who make that happen. But I think it goes further than that. Because even under these circumstances, it's hard for me to imagine the thought that even David, certainly not Saul, would be considered his king. Of course, they're his kings. He anoints them. He chooses them. But the idea of it being his king. And maybe it helps us to understand that the word anointed is the Hebrew word from which we get the word Messiah. I think there's even more going on here. I think the Holy Spirit is speaking through Hannah that he will give strength to his king. The king, the one who's coming, and he will be anointed. Remember that story, the woman who anoints Jesus for his crucifixion and for his kingship. And we'll talk about that story forever, Jesus says, and the power of his anointed. I think there's a lot going on here. Jesus is the one who will be anointed. He is the king. And I think God may already, some of the commentaries focused on this, God, uh, uh, David Guzek, I got to give him permission, I give him, a, not permission, uh, credit for the fact that he noted, this, is a, this could be what's going, part of what's going on here as well. Verse 11. By the way, does this, this, the passage when the, the Apostle Paul references God will give you and do for you more than you could ask or imagine, does this not fall into this? Hey, I just want to have a son so I can have him serve in the tabernacle. That's so sweet. Tell you what, 
I'm going to take your son who you leave and serve in the tabernacle, and I'm going to have him anoint the first two kings of Israel. How about that? Would that be a blessing? What does ministering mean to us? Verse 11, then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Again, Guzik <coughs> paints a really cute picture, as we probably should, of this three or four-year-old kid toddling around in the tabernacle being a big helper, right? <coughs> He's ministering. He's picking up stuff or whatever. It's fascinating that when we consider how this applies to us, that we are now his tabernacle, his temple. We are now his priests, as we looked at in 1 Peter, in 1 Corinthians. The temple, the, 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 the veil in the temple has been torn in half. We are now connected there. And there's a great question that we should ask ourselves. If little Samuel can minister, and we talked about, and worship here in the tabernacle, what are we waiting for? When we go, man, I, I, don't, I don't know if I can minister. I just don't know if I have the gifts. I don't know if I have the whatever. I don't know if I have the time. I don't know if I have the, uh-huh. I don't, I don't know if you want to have that conversation with Samuel someday when you go, I just, I don't know. I just wasn't talented enough to minister. Oh, but, but he was, huh? Three-year-old, four-year-old bull kid wandering around in the tabernacle. We forget that what we do, these responsibilities God has called us to, these are acts of ministry. Stephen Curtis Chapman, a few years ago, created a song called Do Everything. Probably really encouraging to many of you. Um, it certainly was to me. Here's, I'm going to just read some of it. There's, it's a good, the good song is well done, the, the poetry of it. You're picking up toys on the living room floor for the 15th time today. Matching up socks, sweeping up lost Cheerios that got away. You put a baby on your hip and color on your lips and you head out the door. While I may not know you, I'll bet I know you wonder sometimes, does it matter at all? Well, let me remind you. It all matters just as long as you do everything you do for the glory of the one who made you. Because he made you to do every little thing that you do to bring a smile to his face and to tell the story of grace with every move that you make and every little thing you do. If we understand these as acts of ministry, I love the idea that here in this book, what Samuel does isn't called getting under feet. Isn't called being a little toddler and bugging everybody isn't called being a waste of everyone's time and energy. It's called ministering in the tabernacle. This should be an encouragement to us. This counts as ministering in the tabernacle. He, he, the song goes on to list example after example. Maybe you're that guy with a suit and tie. Maybe your shirt says your name. You may be hooking up mergers or cooking up burgers, but at the end of the day, little stuff, big stuff, and stuff in between, it's all ministry. The huge things like giving our children to the Lord, like raising them up. Those are huge things. It's a huge thing to, to take our child and say, this, is your, he's, this child is yours, not mine. And to live that out more and more. And the tiny things, like the big helps that our little children do around us that we do for him. That's us. Now, here as we wrap up, we are charmed, challenged, hopefully convicted by the example and faith of the sweet heart for worship and ministry. We get to this section of the chapter and we should be going, wow, this is such a beautiful thing. It's powerful. It's rich. Let us humble ourselves and be careful of granting uh, all to ourselves. Are we suffering and struggling? We serve a God who reverses fortunes and he will exalt the humble. We find comfort in this and we're at peace and we're encouraged. And then there's a huge scratch across the record that's not supposed to happen. You're like, I'm so calm. Everything's so great. And then this, by the way, a record, it's a thing that makes music. 
Uh, it was a thing that made music and had little lines in it. There's a little pin that made the music. And if, if the pin ever got off, sometimes you literally, kids, would be listening to a song, some great song, and right in the middle of it, that sound would happen instead. That's called, when, you, when, when there's a scratch in the record, that's a sound effect that's horrible. It means, wait, what just happened? It's a total reversal. That's not how things are supposed to happen. Exactly. It's intended to be shocking, like a record scratch, like a pastor coughing in the middle of a sermon, hypothetically. Like this is a, a type of thing. It's a total U-turn. 1 Samuel 2.12 says this, and the sons of Eli were worthless men, and they did not know the Lord. Bam. You realize there's not a chapter break. There's not a heading break in the original. There's no gap at all. That is literally the next words in the Hebrew scripture. All of the calm, warm, fun feelings that you've been having and growing and learning. Like, I feel challenged. At most, you feel challenged and convicted. And now all of a sudden, this? And this, by the way, is a parallel story. It's happening at exactly the same time as this sweet family story of conviction and prayer and hope and honor that we've been reading. It turns out while that's been going on, what's been happening in the temple is this, in the tabernacle is this. The sons of the priests were worthless. Some of your Bibles there refer to them as sons of Belial. This is an anachronism. That's a little out of place translationally. Um, Belial was not yet considered an entity at this time, but that Hebrew word Belial, worthless, wicked, um, troublemakers would become actually, it's such a horrible name in the Hebrew. It's such a horrible description. It becomes one of the names for Satan. Jesus uses it. Um, the sons of Belial. Um, uh, this is, how is this possible? They serve in the tabernacle. We're going to see next couple of weeks, by the way, how awful they are. We're going to see how passive and powerless their father, Eli, who may be the high priest is in this. It makes me as a parent ask some questions. One, had he given them to God? Had he given them to God? Had he turned them over to the Lord the way Hannah had turned over Samuel to the Lord? Had he ever made that commitment and that decision? I don't know. I think we're supposed to ask that. And an even bigger question I think we're supposed to ask, had Eli even been praying for his sons the way Hannah had been praying for Samuel? Had Eli been praying to God in the same way? If he does, by the way, we don't see it. He doesn't reference it. I have to reference real quick, just, just this thought. Um, uh, years ago, doing a counseling with a dad who had a son who would fit into this heading, a worthless son. This kid, this kid had, had, was so full of contempt and pride and rebellion and just horrible attitude about everything. And, and he had gotten fed up with failure in life because everyone was failing him, of course, was his perspective. And so if you can imagine, he decided people who he had mocked and disdained, he was now going to go take advantage and he decided he was going to go join the Marines. And so he goes to the Marine uh, recruiter's office. And I want you to imagine, he walks in the Marine recruiter's office and the guy sitting behind the desk looks up at him and goes... He's like, what am I supposed to do? He's like, only guess, kid. Hooked on weed, depend on it every week. You're probably failing school. You're probably 30 pounds overweight. I bet you can't do 10 push-ups. He goes to this list and he's like, is that right? Yeah? Go talk to the army. Maybe they'll take you. <laughs> he had held these people in contempt and here they were rejecting him. By the way, he walked down the street to the, down the, the hallway to the army recruiter. At least he let him sit down. Got done in the conversation and said, yeah, no thanks, kid. We can do better. I was worried about this guy meeting with the dad. Dad was a good country boy, raised in church, gone to church his whole life. 
good Christian guy. And he's sitting there with me and I'm like, we need to pray for your son. I'm out of stuff. I've been working now with him for several weeks and, and I'm not making a dent and it's time for you and me just to pray. And I don't always do that with my clients, but with him, I was like, it's, I, I don't know, I'm done. <clears throat> he's like, okay, could you pray? And I was like, tell you what, you pray first and then I'll pray. I bow my head, 10 seconds, 20 seconds, 30 seconds go by and I look up and the dad's actually just looking at me. He's got tears in his eyes and he says, I don't think I've ever prayed in my life. I know I've never prayed for my son. I know this is common. People who go to church all their lives, they have no relationship with God whatsoever. And I said, it seems to me like a cart before the horse if you brought your son to therapy before you brought him to God. Nothing wrong with therapy, but therapy ain't God. And so listen, we need to do that first. So you're going to, I'm, let's talk, I'll teach you how to pray. You pray. You're just going to talk to God about your son. And so he did. It was, it was halting and, and clumsy. He had never done it before. And he committed to do that every day. And he started trying to do that. And trying to pray every day. And this isn't how the story always ends. And I don't know how the story ended, but I do know that two weeks later, his son came to him and humbly repented for the life that he'd been living for the last few years and asked his dad for help. Now, is that a direct consequence? I don't see why I wouldn't assume it was. That God had a stiff-necked person and it wasn't the son, it was the dad. And so the dad, God finally got through to him through his son, and there's a reversal of fortune, I believe, that probably happened. This is, this is vital for us. This is where we start. We go to God first, start praying, and keep praying. And by the way, if you're someone who's been praying for something or someone for a long time, and nothing seems to be happening, man, you are in good company. We know how long Hannah prayed. And then we're going to get to her prayer here in a second, but I want to close our time this morning with a, with a prayer about that. A prayer about praying for a long, long time and getting sick of waiting. So if you will stand to wrap up our time, and I, I want to encourage you with this and to recognize, uh, and, and by the way, during our time when we sing and as we pray here, if you want to come forward to pray, we would love for you to do that. If you don't know this Savior, this Messiah, if you don't know Jesus as King of Kings and Lord of Lords and as your Savior, we'd love to pray with you and talk with you about that. If you do, a great question would be, man, what am I, where am I placing the things that matter most to me? Am I giving them to God or am I placing them as, holding them as mine and building my life on them? It's a huge mistake. So we want to pray. If you've been through our welcome home process and you, um, and you know you want to be a part of our dysfunctional family and you've been through that process, you can come up as, as well during this time when we're singing. I want to close out our time first with the 13th Psalm, the Psalm of David. And then I'll wrap up with Hannah's prayer altogether. <coughs> How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Lift up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say, I've prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I've trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. And now Hannah's prayer. My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There's none holy like the Lord, but there's none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. 
The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts up the needy to the, from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces, and against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Amen. The very words of God.